Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the uh, editorial director of PR Week and I guide you gently through another show, another busy week, crazy week, lots going on, lots to chat about. Really pleased to have Nick Kelly with us as our guest this week, who's the president of Charlotte FC, which is uh, an MLS franchise, which is going to kick off in 2022. And Nick is president of the organization, but he comes from a PR background, used to be at NASCAR and uh, Anheuser-Busch. So really looking forward to chatting to you, Nick. Welcome to the podcast. No, thanks for having me, Steve. I really appreciate it. And uh, we got Frank Washcook here, our regular co-host, who's the executive editor of PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Good to meet you, Nick. Hey, nice to meet you too, Frank. So uh, we'll chat to Nick, then we'll talk about our 40 under 40 list, which we launched this week for 21. Great list, really fantastic group of PR pros, and uh, it's always one of our most popular articles of the year. We'll talk about uh, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka at the Olympics really raising the issue of mental health in sports and and beyond. Um, And we'll talk about the Olympics generally, which has been going on all this week. Popeyes has been giving away millions of competitors' nuggets, so we'll talk about that. Lots of uh, interesting social media and and stories like that that we've been covering uh, in recent weeks. Talk about Katy Perry and Orlando Bloom's voting rights PSA. Should CEOs participate in earnings calls? Well, Elon Musk is saying that he's probably not going to from now on. And a nice win for 160 over 90, uh, gaining the Hollister account. But Nick, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about Charlotte FC for those who don't know about the franchise. It's kind of connected to the Carolina Panthers uh, NFL team, but sounds really exciting and you're I think you started in February this year to getting ready for uh, taking part in the MLS next uh, next year. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Steve. Um, you know, we're, we're stuck kicking off the 28th franchise in the MLS uh, next March. Uh, and originally we were supposed to kick off this March. And obviously with all the complications with the pandemic, we uh, had to push it back a year. Uh, obviously in that time, we announced in December of 2019 that, that we got a team. And then we announced in July of last year that this is the name of the team, which is Charlotte Football Club or Charlotte FC. Uh, and then after that, it was very much a, a, a quick stop because I think that no, none of us saw an end in sight on when we'd be able to have fans back in, when we'd be able to go out and recruit players. Uh, and honestly, just from a marketing and a PR standpoint, really be able to, to engage with fans in the marketplace and, and tell our story. So in doing, you know, taking all that into account, we, we kicked it to 2022 and uh, I started in, in February uh, after spending a good amount of time at Anheuser-Busch and saw it as a new challenge. You get to start a, a professional sports club uh, from the ground up, and there's not that many op- of those opportunities left. Uh, and then the other piece is, too, is the added challenge of doing it all in 12 months in the middle of a pandemic. So it's been fun. Uh, it's been challenging, but I honestly think that you know, t- trying to, to restart the momentum we had and also more than anything else, I, I've leaned heavily on my – communications background because there's not a whole lot we can do from an experience from a marketing standpoint when everything's shut down. 
Yeah, I think that's been seen throughout the industry and throughout business, hasn't it, in the last 16 months that communications has led in terms of leadership and and just the narrative around all sorts of organizations. You were employee one, and I think you're up to about 70 people now, and you're going to be around 100. How close uh, – will you have your own stadium? Will you use the Panthers stadium? And how much of an advantage is it being linked to that organization you know, in terms of uh, not com- you're starting from scratch, but you've got some support uh, structures around you. Yeah, I don't know that I take this opportunity to, uh, to start a soccer team from the ground up in 12 months if it wasn't for the support of, of the Panthers organization. Because even though I was, you know, employee one, uh, there was a ton of resources across the street at the stadium uh, with the Panthers from a uh, PR standpoint marketing, digital, uh, you name it, all of that infrastructure was there. And in starting in February, which was the off season for the Panthers, everybody was able to kind of step in. So I, with the, the beauty of the kind of us having, and it's not really that uncommon in, in MLS and the NFL, but the beauty of having uh, both franchises under one ownership group is in times of need. So we, we had a big press conference last week announcing our head coach, you know, we can go from having three R PR professionals to 15. Like we can really flex up in the moments that are needed. Uh, and then the moments that aren't, we can just go back and here's the Panthers person. Here's the Tepper sports person. Here's the Charlotte FC. So the, that type of value to, to really have to be able to maximize the big moments and get them right is, is what makes it special. And, you know, we're going to be playing at Bank of America Stadium, which which is a rather large stadium for soccer. But. We've seen a lot of success in Atlanta and Seattle, uh, New England, that you know you can play in a, in a venue that big uh, and grow into it. So we expect to have the largest MLS match ever uh, for our first match and then average around 30,000 plus. And if everything goes well in the world of soccer with the World Cup in 2026 here in the United States, we can you know continue to grow and we're not capped out. So while it has its challenges, it also has a lot of you know upside. Yeah, that's a that's a massive opportunity, isn't it? But we have seen with, uh, you know, into Miami with even with a global superstar like David Beckham attached to that franchise, they they have struggled, haven't they, to establish themselves? What um, lessons can you draw from that? And do you think that's in part because they don't have the same infrastructure, or is it really just all about results on the pitch at the end of the day? Look, I mean, I think that you know David's been a, an amazing ambassador to the sport. I also think that they they just have some challenges in the marketplace that are. Uh, maybe outside the team. I think that they've, it, it took a while for that fran- franchise to get off the ground. And you're also looking right now, too, is they're trying to find a permanent home. And I think that Miami is just a challenging market of uh, there's, there's probably people with the mentality of we'll get there whenever they get to their permanent stadium. But they've done a good job, I mean, especially this year. I was there for their opening match this this summer. And, uh, you know, they're getting a, a little bit better of, of integrating in, into the crowd. I mean, I think they started last year in the middle of a pandemic. And regardless of on the field, they really never got their first ever chance to, for a proper launch. So I think that it, it goes to show, regardless if you have the world's biggest soccer star, like you need to have everything kind of aligned and moving in the same direction. And they've had, unfortunately, a lot of challenges, but they have a good team in place down there. And, you know, eventually uh, they'll, they'll get the new stadium figured out. And, you know, when you have the power of David Beckham, you, you don't need a whole lot more. Yeah, I mean, it takes a while to launch these franchises and get them off the ground, doesn't it? So um, how, how difficult was it sort of recruiting players when, you know, you had to, you at one point you were going to start this year and then you had to uh, delay it for a year? I know Christian Fuchs is going to be playing for you eventually, but he's, he's playing for someone else, you know, in the interim. Tell us a bit about that part of the equation. 
Yeah, it's, it, it was challenging because um, we actually started recruiting players last summer. So we have at least two players that were will have been on roster for a year and a half before they ever set foot on the pitch for us. So it's, it was a little bit challenging for, for our fans, maybe more so than anybody else, to understand why we would sign somebody so far out. But from just a player recruitment standpoint, the biggest challenge is uh, when you're recruiting a lot of these international players, they know New York City, they know Miami, they know Los Angeles. Trying to explain to them where Charlotte, North Carolina is, the value of it, uh, a big portion of, of my job that was probably unforeseen when I started is, is working with our, our sporting director, which is the equivalent to a general manager, to recruit these players and recruit their agents on the fact that here's the value proposition for coming to Charlotte. It's the quality of life. You're two hours from New York. You're two hours from Miami, big international airport. Like These are the types of things that you don't take into account whenever you're you know, dealing with any other sport in the United States because everybody who played college football or college basketball knows all these big cities. If I'm talking to, to a kid who's 17, 18, 19 in Eastern Europe or Africa, I have to explain to their parents, to their agent, to them, why this is a great place. So I feel like we're, we're almost a part of the – convention of visitor bureaus just because like we're literally just over here just saying this is why the carolinas is great this is why you'll love it and oh by the way you can be on the first team but that's been a big big point for us is just educating on, on the marketplace yeah it's a bit like persuading someone to come to middlesbrough or burnley in the, <laughs> in the uk i guess because <laughs> they don't uh although carolinas is, is a totally it's a fantastic place isn't it so where do you think soccer's at in the u.s because you know i i'm, I'm old enough to remember when people said it'll never take off you know there's been many attempts but it it's obviously gained a lot of traction especially amongst uh, girls and, and young women as well as as um and, and in terms of viewing you know people watch the premier league a lot but where do you think it's at and especially at the mls in terms of establishing it as a really credible league where maybe Players don't just come for the end of their career or right at the start, but where you you know you you, you would ideally attract the, the global superstars here for the you know the majority of their career. Yeah, I think it, there's there's two kind of two waves to this. Uh, the next eighteen months are critical uh, for for soccer in North America. I think that the, there was the unfortunate events where the U.S. national team from the men's side was unable to qualify for both the Olympics and the World Cup. And I think we lost some momentum, even though we had some young talent, as we see today, contributing on some of the biggest international clubs, you know, whether it be Premier League or La Liga. Uh, I think that that is, it, it, was, it was a missed opportunity. But, you know, we have the momentum now of, you know, in the, in, in the, I guess, the November, December of next year, having a chance to get back in the World Cup the last World Cup before it comes back here. And really, we do have some of the biggest stars in, this, in, in global soccer that are from America. And the, the importance of storytelling on behalf of U.S. soccer, all of the soccer community over the next 18 months to, to, to introduce these stars that may not be playing in the U.S. but are representing us and showing you can be them uh, is phase one. I think phase one has to be is we have to make sure everybody understands that soccer is more than a domestic sport. I think the second part is is going to be is the lead up to the World Cup in 26. And if we don't get this right, and that's the entire soccer community of MLS, everybody, then then we're in a we're in a tough spot. But I think that we can also use that as a springboard to, to compete to be one of the top two or three sports in the United States. Yeah, Frank, you're a keen student of uh, soccer, and you, I know you follow German football a lot, and there's some top um, a few top American players playing over there. What's your take on it? Well, um, Nick, I wanted to ask you, first of all, uh, do you have any interaction with the um, 
like the the supporter groups that are coming into place and 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 how do they get organized from the ground up because i remember reading some of them in mls are are you know really passionate and i remember reading a couple months ago that the the columbus team changed their uh changed their logo and there was just this huge uproar about it you had all these guys coming in that had it tattooed wherever on their body (laughs) and and it was suddenly a huge problem for them personally um so uh, do you have any interaction with like a, a burgeoning supporters group or anything like that? Or, and how do those folks get off the ground? Yeah. So they, I do on a, on a daily basis at this point, I think that uh, when I first started in February, um, I had a couple people reach out to me from other clubs who said day one, you need to reach out to all your, your independent supporter groups and develop a relationship and just more than anything, listen, because we had, call it 12 months from that point on to, to build a relationship, build a level of trust and, and really build a two-way communication because they do influence so much of what happens in soccer uh, more so than any other sports fans. Because in my opinion is once the match starts, you have 45 minutes that you as, as the, as the team can't interrupt. It's not like there's a TV timeout. There is no commercial breaks. So the fan atmosphere in the game atmosphere is driven almost entirely off these diehard supporter groups and these fans. So if your relationship with them isn't strong and the communication isn't strong, we've seen you know them just truly just not show up or have chants that are against ownership or even against their own team to show their frustration. So it's important for us to, for them to set the, the game day um, tone from, from the minute it starts until the minute it ends. So that relationship is important, but I, I can honestly tell you that it's been extremely cumbersome. And that's why kind of we're looking for the highest position of a chief fan officer, because we need somebody who can literally be available to them 365, 24 seven, because these guys have ideas, they have complaints and they're all warranted or, or at least worth a conversation to figure it out. And if they don't feel like we're listening um, and, it, and then you know, we're never going to truly get their buy-in. So I think that for us, like we've seen and read about some of the other issues some teams have had, but we're trying to do everything we can before we get started to avoid that uh, just by, you know, truly having this two-way conversation. I love that idea of a chief fan officer. I think uh, we could uh, translate that to Manchester United with the Glazers' ownership over there, which has had uh, just the problems you were uh, describing there. So uh, that's a great idea. Finally, Nick, you've, you come from a communications background and you come from sports marketing. How have those skills you know, helped you in this role and what's the biggest challenge being sort of transitioning to actually running an organisation? Honestly, I think that the the, the biggest reason I was – successful in my previous job at Anheuser-Busch and Bev uh, in, in a non-communications role was the previous decade working in PR. I think that, you know, the ability to understand uh, stakeholder management, stakeholder communication, and not the, me- the same message doesn't go to everybody in the same way, and to, but you can still, you know, deliver the same message is important. I think that uh, now, and, and even looking at the different audiences in my current role, is, is managing, you know, who needs to know what, when, and, you know, how much information. And I think that that's been critical. And, yeah, I think that it's, yeah, I'm still probably a PR person at heart. And that's probably where my strength is. I get a little bit too involved sometimes on everything from a press release to a messaging document. Um, but it's just because that's what I'm comfortable with. So I think that I'll always kind of be in that position. But, you know, it's really probably the biggest reason why I am where I am today. 
Yeah, getting into the weeds. I mean, you've got Zeno helping you out on PR as well, I think. So um, got a good agency there, our agency of the year, to help you. Well, we wish you luck with it, Nick. Um, I really fancy coming to see a game, actually, um, sometime when you get that up and running. So, um, yeah, looking forward to seeing what you do with it. And uh, we'll get your contributions to the news stories. Frank, tell us about the 40 under 40 list. It's always an exciting launch, isn't it? I think we get more traffic for this than any other article, but it just shows what the future leadership of the industry is going to look like. And it's pretty optimistic. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it's it's a very young, diverse group that reflects the the younger parts of the industry and it has some really impressive people on it. Um, I just want to give a few call outs, you know, Sade Ayodele from Taylor has done um, tremendous work uh, over the past year plus uh, on the whole the press initiative and really holding uh, agencies feet to the fire in terms of, you know, meeting diversity numbers and disclosing diversity numbers and things like that. That's, that's really important work. So it's good to see her recognized on the list. But um, yeah, we have folks like Emily Graham from Omnicom, uh, who has just sort of shot up the ranks over there um, from working at Fleischman Hiller to, you know, going to the parent company at Omnicom. Um, and we have people from a lot of uh, impressive companies, you know, whether that's IHOP and all the things they've done in marketing, to Pinterest being one of the brands and the platforms of the pandemic uh, with Meredith Klein on the list. Um, and it, it's, it's a terrific list. You should check it out if you haven't already. Uh, every year, I want to say it's our best year, our best list yet. Um, there's, there's a real strong case for this year, uh, for sure, but it's a really good list. It really is, and it makes me feel optimistic about the future leadership of this industry and the future of the industry generally. Great, diverse, talented lists. Some of the things I noticed uh, when writing about it was uh, all about giving back. They've all got that as part of their mission. They, uh, they're into yoga. They're into martial arts. <laughs> um, they're, they are... They're not going to, you know, they're, they're, they're genuinely purposeful. So, you know, when people talk about walking the walk on purpose, these, this cohort, this generation is, is going to do that. And, I, and it makes me feel very strongly about it because we still see in the mainstream media, you still see articles about PR pros, which is all about spin doctors, dark arts and uh, subterfuge. And, you know, we know at PR, PR Week, we're not naive to the fact that there aren't dark arts in, in and I, I would contend they're not PR people, but uh, the, the real leaders and the people shaping this industry are much more uh, representative of the power list and the 40 under 40 group. So do go to our new website and check it out because it's a, it's a very inspiring list. Obviously, the Olympics are on and, um, you know, two of the big narratives have been Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka um, and the, the issue of mental health in sport and beyond. And, uh, Frank, they really came to a head, didn't they, with um, Simone Biles um, actually pulling out of the team event and, and now the all-round event. But uh, sparked a lot of debate out there, didn't it? It did. And I, I think, you know, one issue you're seeing, and it's really unfortunate, is that especially with young athletes of color, just the amount of uh, problems with social media users, just in the, the, the racist comments and the, the other ridiculous comments people make about them. And I, I read an article in the New York Times about this, about how Naomi Osaka has faced this uh, from Japanese fans who are critical of her and the comments made about her on social media and how it's affected her. Um, but you, you see way too much of this stuff out there. And we saw it after the Euro finals, of course. Um, but it, it, I, I just think there's a tremendous pressure on young athletes right now. 
uh, I remember thinking before the events actually started, you know, it's, it's Simone Biles is just the, not only the face of the U.S. gymnastics team, but almost the face of the entire U.S. team. She seems to be in all of the commercials for the Olympics. Um, and and I really, you know, kind of had the sense of rooting for her and that I, I hope she would pull it off. But she was almost in a situation where she had to win everything. Uh, or almost some people would consider her a failure if she didn't. And it's just such an incredible high-pressure situation. And you know what? You, you look at what happened with her, and I think that mentally, if she was not in a place where she felt she could execute the things that she needed to execute in such a dangerous sport like that, where if you'd land the wrong way, you could have so many serious injuries – then what she did, she was wise to do it. And she was wise to put somebody else in a position where they could help the U.S. team where she might not have been able to. And so I think she, she deserves credit for, for wisdom uh, in, in doing that. And, uh, you know, I hope she gets it. And I hope that I hope that more people and more athletes, and I think you saw Katie Ledecky do this in the past 24 hours, but I hope that more athletes come to her defense and really talk about the issues that they face. Because I think the pressure on young athletes, and especially young athletes of color, is bigger than it's ever been before. Yeah, well said, Frank. I agree with you. And let's not forget, this is a young woman who was sexually abused by the coach, Larry Nasser, back in the day. She's uh, out there in Japan without her family, I think, for the first time at a major tournament. We've all been stressed out by the last 16 months. So this, it's an incredibly uh, stressful situation. And you, you're absolutely right about that sport. When I see what they do, it's incredible. And she, she was actually putting the team first because she would have probably cost them a medal if she'd stayed on. What I would say is that the athletes, that the gymnasts that, that stepped in, they did a, a brilliant job. Mm -hmm. And um, what I loved also was the camaraderie with the, with the U.S. and the Russian teams, right, who – you know, not I can remember the days of the Cold War when they would they wouldn't have even acknowledged each other. But I think all the all the gymnasts um, they they kind of know each other and they were yeah very super competitive, but also caring about each other. Uh, you yeah. know, when, when the Russian gymnast fell off the the beam, for example, you know Simone was there to comfort her as well. You know, so so uh, you know. Um, I, I can't. I can't have any truck with the Piers Morgans of this world who just think it's a, another example of the woke culture, you know, and, and weakness. Nick, Nick, you've been in, around sports for a long time. I'd love to hear your take on it. Yeah, I think that it's one of those situations that, uh, and when I grew up and playing sports in college and younger, when I was 20, 20 years ago plus, um, you never talked about this type of stuff. And I, I believe that it's kind of reached a point too, especially coming out of the pandemic and, and self reflection that. Um, these are the types of things that people have always dealt with, but just never felt comfortable talking about. And I think that, you know, people like Simone Biles uh, and other athletes in the NBA and that you're seeing in the NFL now, them come out and actually say and, and talk about the, what they're feeling and how it's impacting them both mentally and physically on the field is, is something that it's the right thing to do. And I just think there's a generation of, of adults who because they didn't grow up that way, just don't get it. And I think it's unfair. And honestly, too, I think that the next generation of fans is just, you know, this will be a little bit more of the norm and accepted. Yeah, I think the new the new factor is the social media angle, isn't it? And the, the horrific abuse that people get, not just in sports, but generally. And I'm, I do think that the uh, platforms have got to do something about these anonymous uh, uh, trolls who are basically racially abusing and, and, and uh, just 
doing stuff that's uh, that's unacceptable. So, um, you know, we wish Simone and, and all the athletes the best, and um, and I hope she, uh, you know, finds some solace. And if she competes, great. If she doesn't, you know, it's not the end of the world. So, but it has been a, the first week of the Olympics, Frank. And uh, I'm personally, I'm a massive fan. I'm not sure you're as big a fan as I am, but I love the sort of the way it gets the whole world together and you have these great stories like the the, the Tongan guy at the uh, opening ceremony who's all oiled up or the the Tunisian swimmer, you know, that wins a gold medal or the Syrian refugee who just makes the competition. So what have your, what have your takeaways been, you know, from a storytelling narrative point of view from the first week? It's, it's terrific to see. Um, it's terrific to see it happening, first of all, because it was supposed to happen last year and it didn't, obviously. It does take something away that there are not spectators there. I, I think that does have to be said. Um, but it is good to see all of those athletes that train so hard for so long get their due and get a chance to go and participate in the Olympics. Because if they had canceled it, I mean, a lot of those athletes would not have gotten the chance to go at all. Um, I, I think a lot of the big narratives will also be in the, the next week. I mean, there's always a, a big star or two that emerges from the track and field events, isn't there? Um, and that's yet to come. And, uh, you know, some of the, the, the team sports, uh, you know, elimination games and, and medal games are yet to come. Uh, so I, I, I think that while a lot of the big stars uh, may not have medaled in the way people thought they would have, uh, I, I think there's a lot of excitement yet to come on it. Have you been enjoying the horse dancing, Frank? I, I have not seen any horse dancing. I will. I will say the the time difference. It is kind of hard to work yeah, up true. the excitement watching it when you know what's going to happen. And I, I don't. I don't know that in this day and age you can avoid spoilers completely, uh, unless you can completely, you know, check out from the world. But. Um, it, yeah, that's true. That's it true. does make it a little bit difficult to get excited about things that are have a photo finish, you know, like the the swimming, the the relay swimming the other night. Yeah, was is it Bruce Springsteen's daughter that's in dressage? Um, yeah, so so yeah. I read. What what were your takeaways, Nick? What uh, do you like the Olympics, and what what were your eye this week? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always loved the Olympics. I just think it's in today's day and age a little bit challenging to follow. Uh, where I wake up and I already know all the results, so so my interest in tuning in for the primetime replay is, is kind of gone. Uh, they've done as, as good a job as they can in not having too many of those highlights leak out during the day. But uh, you know that anticipation of seeing how it plays out, uh, that drama really isn't there. So while, while I still traditionally love and support the you know the U.S. team. I can't honestly say that I've tuned in for more than an hour over the last couple of days. Yeah, they've got the swimming on at Triangle, well, sort of prime time in the evening. So uh, that's been quite unpopular. But um, yeah, I should have said earlier, actually, the TV coverage, you, you made a fair point about NBC and Simone being the face of it. But I thought Michael Phelps was great on talking about her. And, and he's he's our communicator of the year last year. And we know the problems he's had with mental health, but also the work, he, the great work he's doing around that and saying it's, it's okay to not be okay. But I was really impressed with what he was saying, both from that point of view and also his insight into the swimming and you know what he really showed how much the US team missed what a goat he was to, to do it over such a you know 20 year period because you can see that, that the team is missing him and, and for someone to do it over so long over so many uh, different uh, distances is just incredible 
Yeah, uh, I agree. And I think he I think he adds something beyond the commentary too. I I, I think that he does. Uh, uh, and, and that's a rare thing. I think in sports commentary, he really truly goes beyond you know X's and O's, so to speak. Uh, and just the technical parts of it and, and really into what the athletes are going through, what they're thinking, how they prepare. Um, and, and a lot of the stuff that he mentions, I, I don't think you'd have any other way of knowing except from hearing somebody like him. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, we'll see the track and field gets underway. As you say, that's, that is the Olympics for many people. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. And, then, you know, the brands are getting their association through the NBC coverage. And we're seeing different consumption habits, a lot, a lot more people watching on streaming. So, yes, the live, you know, the viewing figures are down, but the streaming figures are way up. So, um, but we saw that down even in Brazil when it's in the same time zone, we saw numbers down. So I think it's just a, it's partly a reflection reflection of changing uh, media consumption habits yeah there's a lot of fascinating media stories out there too just about how um everything is packaged so much differently than it used to be where it used to strictly be like a one network tv package with a concentration on prime time and now so much of it is through streaming and eventually you know the social media will be included in all of these different things um, the one thing I, 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 this is, this is my one huge pet peeve about the opening ceremonies is that, um, this, this policy that the, the U S Olympic committee, and maybe it's even the international Olympic committee has where they don't let the athletes fully embrace their own social media use. Uh, it's crazy. I'm telling you, it is so bad and it is so antiquated. And you have these situations where, you know, Kevin Durant is walking into the stadium and he's one of the, the better known athletes on the whole planet. And he's streaming this on Instagram. He's clearly excited and, and getting something out of this and telling a positive story and interacting with the other athletes. And there are these like minders, you know, walking up to him, telling him, you know, you can't do that. You can't do that. And it's like, he's not, he's not going to listen to you anyway. So, like, don't even bother. But it's just, it is such a counterproductive policy. And oh, great really events, isn't it? Yeah. And he, but he's also reaching a younger generation by doing that. Yes. Uh, that's on social media all the time. And, and it's just so counterproductive, this policy that they have. And they, they really, the sooner they can get rid of it, the better, because it is. It's we could good. talk about this for hours. We haven't even mentioned the outfits. But anyway, uh, let's move on to Popeyes and chicken nuggets. And uh, they're giving away millions of them. What's going on there, Frank? Yes, it's um, this is a this is a pretty cool campaign. Uh, I will not take sides in the chicken wars. I sort of <laughs> like all chicken sandwiches and all chicken nuggets. Uh, but the Popeyes Foundation uh, has pledged to donate one million dollars worth of chicken nuggets from its competitors to the Louisiana based uh, nonprofit second harvest, uh, which is terrific. And by doing the, the campaign, the theme of it is we come in peace, which uh, is referring to eight piece chicken nuggets that they're rolling out. Um, and of course, Popeye's two years ago, uh, released that, that chicken sandwich. And you remember the lines around the block and the social media buzz, uh, and things like that. So it, it's, it's a cool rollout. I'm sure it will generate a lot of buzz, but it's a, it's a good way of giving back. And it's, um, they're giving back to an, um, an, an organization tied to their foundation. You know, they're both Louisiana-based, and yeah, I, I think it's just a good initiative. Really good yeah. stuff. Puts their competitors in a difficult situation, doesn't it? Because they can't exactly, you know, be yeah. dismissive because it's in a good course. So it's interesting use of, uh, of that. 
Katy Perry and Orlando Bloom have uh, released the voting rights PSA. Tell us about that one. Yeah, it's it's very dystopian. They they uh, appear to be broadcasting from a dystopian uh, future in which there is not voting uh, in this PSA. And the PSA is to support the uh, For the People Act, which is a vet, uh, federal voting rights bill. It's from Represent Us, which is uh, uh, they call themselves a nonpartisan pro-democracy organization. Uh, I'm not sure everybody would agree they're nonpartisan, but um, for this purpose, they are. And the agencies that work with uh, Oxcart Assembly and D.D. Von Mufflin Communications for for PR and media relations. Um, Interesting campaign, interesting PSA here. Um, The catch to this, I think, though, is that before the People Act, does not have that great of a chance of passage. So I I don't know how much attention it's going to get or how much attention it's going to drive to this issue because of that, because it's the bill in and of itself has really fallen out of the news cycle because of that. Yeah, you've said that before. And uh, do you think this will get it back into a news cycle? And presumably that's the intention. Uh, I just don't think that uh, the votes don't seem to be there. Yeah. All right, we saw we've seen some incredible earnings releases this week with some of the uh, platforms. Just the, the scale of the money they're making is unbelievable. The Googles, the Facebooks, etc., and Tesla. Um, the, the the scale of earnings is a separate issue. But Elon Musk on his call said he wasn't probably going to participate in earnings calls moving forward, except on special occasions. So you know, it begs the question: Do should CEOs participate in these calls and? I guess the obvious answer is yes. And is, is uh, Elon Musk just a special case? What, but what, what, what do you think, Frank? That's, that's exactly what I think. I think, yes, they should in general. Um, but I think it's hard to make a general rule depending on uh, what Elon Musk says or does just because he communicates with the public in such an unusual way, you know, through some a lot of tweets and some, you know, some very curious tweets at times. And uh, I think he's a bit of a special case um because as we know a lot of ceos are not media friendly and they're definitely not social media friendly so uh he's a unique individual so i'm not sure what works for him or what works for tesla is going to work for everybody else that's uh, a very fair point the same applies to his communications team or lack thereof because uh, he's a bit of a steve jobs type figure isn't he, he kind of communicates directly himself yeah. and uh finally a nice win for 160 over 90 which um uh is uh, an agency uh, with its roots in sports and entertainment and they won the hollister account Yes, that is the Abercrombie and Fitch owned uh, Hollister brand. Um, so they're going to work with them on communication strategy and their influencer program, which is called the Hollister Creator Collective. Um, so they started working together this year after 160 over 91, a competitive pitch. So the band got to that creator collective. It includes 32 influencers, uh, including fashion influencers dancers uh they do live shopping streams curating collection and social media takeovers uh and they have worked with uh influential folks like dixie and charlie d'amelio um and interesting thing about this 160 over 90 is the first pr relationship ever for the hollister brand so good win for them there 
Yeah, for sure. Nick, just final question for you. You know, you've through a bunch of stories about social media there and, you know, um, PSAs and all that stuff. Sports marketing and entertainment has obviously had a tough year, year and a half. Where do you think it's at now? Is it returning? Um, you know, are you going to be able to build those brand relationships again? And, and how are you going to deploy all that good stuff uh, with the launch of Charlotte FC? Yeah, I think there's a huge demand or pent up demand for for people to get back out to some of these big live events uh, and even going back to, to movies and, and things of the past. I think that we'll see a lot of these live stream capabilities and even some, some of the things that we all got accustomed to in the, the COVID world uh, maybe carry over. But there's some things we want to leave behind. And I think that the pent up demand for, for brands to have the ability to go out there and engage with, with consumers again face-to-face, you know, especially with 50, 60, 70,000 people at a live event, you know, once everybody feels, you know, firmly safe, and that may not be until the beginning of 2022, um, you know, we'll, we'll put us all in a position where I, I see a lot of the, the marketing dollars from some of the, some of the bigger CPG brands really shifting back to live events, and, and they're just waiting for when is the right time to, to do that. Yeah, well, we wish you well with the launch and uh, looking forward to tracking how you do and the players you attract. So thanks for coming on the show and telling us more about it. Uh, thanks, Steve Brink. Um, yeah, so PR Week Awards, they're open for entries, the Oscars of the industry. So make sure you get your best work into that. We've got our talking about in-person events, our Purpose Awards on the 13th of October and our 40 Under 40 event to celebrate the group that was announced this week. They are planned for October the 13th and 28th, respectively, obviously, depending on what happens between then and now. So do we look forward to seeing you in person there. Our PR Decoded conference will be virtual from the 12th to the 14th of October. And do look out for our Best Places to Work initiative. That is going to be launching over the next few days, so make sure you get your submissions in for that. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.